so there is plenty of food the thing is it takes a while to adapt the supply chains to be able to feed into a different channel welcome back to the wedgeworth leadership institute podcast I'm Ann Schwartz, and today I'm excited to be joined by the president of 210 Analytics, Anne-Marie Rohrink. To start off, Anne-Marie, can you tell us a little bit about your background and about your company? I sure can. So good morning, uh, good afternoon, whatever time you are listening to this podcast. My name is uh, Anne-Marie Rohrink, and I am the founder and president of 210 Analytics, which is a, a small research company. I'm located in Lakeland, Florida, and uh, for many years I've been focusing on the food retailing industry. Um, so all my research is in the areas of meat and produce and deli dairy bakery um, and many other areas, uh, trying to understand how consumers buy their food, how they prepare it, how they consume it, um, as much as we can understand about the consumer uh, from a food perspective. I guess we'll we'll start at the beginning of this story then, the, the story that everybody can't help but think about lately. Uh, what were your initial thoughts when you heard about COVID-19? So originally, I am from the Netherlands, and my family still lives there. Um, so for me personally, uh, it hit, I think, a little bit earlier than most of us here in the United States just because of what was happening in Europe. But I will say early March, um, we're in full-blown conference season. So uh, some of you might have attended the Southeast Produce Council. Uh, then there was the meat conference in Nashville right after that. Then I went to a chocolate conference in San Francisco right after that. And that all took place the first week of March. And it was actually fascinating um, to see the evolution going from one to the next conference, whereas at produce, we partied hard together at meat, everybody shook hands and hugged and then come produce, which or come uh, candy, I should say, in San Francisco, everybody already started with the little elbow shake instead of a handshake. So the world was already changing a little bit then. And then that second week of March, um, you know, just just the world changed overnight. And like I said, most of my career, I have worked in research relative to food retailing and uh, boy, did, did the world change overnight. That's starting the second week of March. Wow. I think this, I mean, I guess I hope is what I should say that this is the kind of event that you only witness once in your career. And with that in mind, what did you, what did you start to see happen in the second week of March? You know, you're, uh, I, I fully agree with you. Let's hope this uh, does not happen again. As a researcher, it is fascinating, but of course the human toll as well as the toll on, on the industry in terms of, of meat and produce and dairy and everything else has been absolutely devastating. Um, a lot of reporters are asking me, you know, is, have we ever seen anything like this before? And the answer is no. Um, of course, during a hurricane or a blizzard, we know that people start running to the store and panic purchasing, but that tends to be in a very local area. And it also tends to be just about three to 400 different items. And what started happening uh, with the second week of March is that people just started to worry about, you know, do I have the supplies in my home? How is this going to affect my family? 
And starting that second week of March, which is the week ending March 8th, everybody started stocking up on especially things like uh, hand sanitizers, cleaners, bleach, toilet paper, um, and that flew off the shelf. And then after that, we had the two biggest panic buying weeks I have ever seen, and I believe to be the highest um, retailing weeks uh, in, the, in the modern history of grocery retailing. So what happened the week of 315, March 15 and March 22nd is that regardless of what, what area of the store, um, things started just flying. Uh, meat sales nearly doubled. Uh, frozen food sales nearly doubled. Really the only one that didn't move as high was fresh produce. That's kind of a trend that we've been seeing throughout the last two months, because of course we're starting to look at two months now of, of grocery patterns. So fresh produce is um, obviously trending ahead of, of last year, but not to the extent that we've seen in some other areas like meat and dairy. Um, which I find fascinating. I think the media the last couple of years has really been on the case of animal protein, whether it's meat or dairy. Um, there was really not a whole lot that we could do right. And to see that during this pandemic, people are going back to the familiar and animal protein, both in meat and, and dairy, has really made a giant comeback. Um, and we also see a lot of people going back to Baking, for instance, uh, there's pandemic baking is, is what people are calling it, um, but also a lot of cooking. I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating that it wasn't just the food moving in stores, um, but there's a company that tracks searches and purchases on sites like Amazon. It's called Profitero, and they, they put out some very interesting statistics that very early on, people started to buy things like uh, air fryers and instant pots and pizza ovens and coffee makers. So instead of buying our coffee at Starbucks, we started to make it at home. And then uh, at the same time, and, and this is even more fascinating, the, the number of searches and purchases of things like knives and bowls and, and cutting boards just was nearly a straight line up, um, which tells me two things. Americans weren't cooking before if, if those kinds of basics are still items that you're buying, um, but they certainly are cooking now. And I think for the food industry um, and animal agriculture and, and um, produce agriculture in the long term, that's, that's a fantastic thing. I, I was trying not to laugh as you were saying that because you talked about people going back to the familiar. And I know I did that because the first thing I went to the store and bought was peanut butter and jelly for some reason, which I guess is also what I buy for a hurricane. So maybe that's why I associated it with panic buying. And then you also wow. talked about people buying kitchen tools for cooking. And I recently bought a mixer because I didn't have that before. And I, I tried my hand at quarantine baking, but it didn't go very well. Uh, but I, I guess I'll still have time to keep working on it. Well, I agree with you. So um, I actually did not buy my um, bread maker, which is one of the highest one that spiked because everyone is now making their own artisan bread. But I tried my hand at that and the thing was so rock hard that I actually managed to break not one wooden spoon trying to pry it out, but two. So oh my yeah, gosh. I, uh, <laughs> I did not do so well in that regard either. Taking a step back and trying to get a uh a big picture view of this situation that we've seen unfold. How has COVID-19 impacted supply chains for agricultural products? 
Yeah, it's had, um, you know, it really depends on what side of the supply chain you sit. Let me start with that. Um, so, for instance, in mushrooms, uh, a lot of mushroom growers either supply to retail or to food service. So some of the mushroom growers um, are doing fantastic and are seeing volume and dollars trend 20, 30, 40% of, of last year. But then others who were feeding into food service, being restaurants, they saw their demand collapse overnight and some of them had to simply close their, their growing facilities. And so it's been devastating to see that on some hand, we're seeing these enormous numbers in, in dairy, deli, bakery, meat, produce at the retail side of things. Um, but of course, starting that, that I'd say third and, and fourth week of March, um, a lot of governance uh, across the entire United States uh, mandated uh, seating areas and restaurants to be closed. And that then only limited restaurants, as we all know, to do in takeout. And, you know, that just doesn't compare to the type of volume that they do typically. Um, so whether we're looking at meat or produce or anything going into food service sort of overnight dropped and that's really, I think, one of the big business lessons where um, some people were able to be nimble. They saw what was coming and they immediately started looking for what are some different and creative ways in which I might be able to move my volume in different kind of ways. So in produce, we saw several distributors and growers go consumer direct and put together these, these kits of, of different produce items that they're selling um, through their facilities. I read of a restaurant uh, right here in Florida in Fort Lauderdale that initially just meant to sell off all their high-end meat cuts that they had, um, as, as of course you always buy ahead. Um, and that worked so well. They, they just put all their chefs to work um, as butchers basically, and all their waiting staff was taking orders and, and fulfilling them. That worked so well that this particular restaurant is now actually selling three times the volume in meat than they ever moved through their restaurant. So I've seen some very creative solutions and by no means does that make up for the volume that was lost. Um, and I, I just also love seeing some of the cooperation that is happening between retailers where Publix announced that they're going to buy a lot of the milk that was going into things like schools and food service and that they will buy the milk and donate the milk to food banks. So we're really seeing um, on the one hand some, some devastation in the supply chain, but on, on the other hand, we're seeing creativity and, and really that spirit of we're in this together and um, just unlikely partners just getting together and making it work. I think you might've touched on this earlier, but how have different commodities been impacted differently? Um, so initially meat especially just started flying off the shelf in retail and uh, we saw a huge demand for beef and chicken, which are by far the two biggest commodities and they sold out. I mean, they were wiped out and we went really deep into the supply chain of those two pro um, proteins. 
And that's actually another big lesson. When the bigs were sold out, we saw people starting to shift to what we call the smaller proteins, things like bison and lamb and turkey. And so after that first week, when the big supplies of, of the big proteins, uh, beef and chicken, were started to be wiped out, we saw people get very flexible in what they purchased. So we have a lot of consumers that bought lamb and, and turkey and pork and bison, uh, cuts and kinds that they normally do not buy. And so a big lesson, I think, is if you're a smaller uh, vegetable or a smaller dairy product or a smaller meat protein, um, this is a great time to try and get in front of consumers because they are very flexible right now in what they're purchasing. Within produce, what we saw is that people were buying items with a long shelf life. Um, because a lot of consumers wanted to have uh, a food supply, whether that was your peanut butter and jelly uh, or it was meat and, and produce that would last because they had this notion that they needed to have two weeks worth of food in their house. That was about the, the guideline that most of the folks were, were shopping for. And so we saw enormous strength in potatoes um, and onions and those type of items that are versatile. They last a long time. Um, but at the same time, we saw that consumers were looking for immune boosting type of product because, of course, there's not a vitamin to be found after that first wipeouts of the store. And we, we've seen oranges, for instance, uh, track 60, 70 percent of the same week uh, last year ahead in terms of dollar sales. And people are just buying anything that they're knowing uh, is good for them. That's another huge lesson learned and opportunity. And that is not everybody understands what food is good for them, what kinds of nutrients um, are provided by food. A lot of people uh, figure, okay, meat is protein, oranges is vitamin C, but we know there's many other fruits and vegetables that provide vitamin C and other immune uh, boosting nutrients. So, you know, really ex uh, talking to consumers and, and um, marketing your product from different angles, I, I think is a big opportunity that's emerging um, amid the pandemic as well. Wow, it's it's uncanny what you're saying because I'm once again hearing you describe the way I've reacted as a as a shopper in the grocery store during this time and that's kind of crazy because I I know that I have been more willing to branch out when what I'm used to is out of stock. And another example is I tried Walmart grocery pickup for the first time. I had never done that before and now I've enjoyed it so much. I think I'll keep doing it even after this is all over. Yeah, you and 40 uh, million other households, I believe it. <laughs> 40 million? 40 wow. million. So and in, in online kind of had its heyday, and then it sort of started to level off uh, where people tried it once or twice, and for whatever reason, it wasn't growing as aggressively. Um, so my little saying in this area, it is 2025 now. So we had a growth trajectory and we figured that we would be about at this level five years from now. But what COVID-19 has caused is a lot of people wanting to be in the store less and they've tried online shopping. And like you, many, many shoppers are actually loving it. And now that you've taken the time to actually put all the items that you typically buy um, in that online basket, I bet you now you're spending a whole lot less time going to your past favorites, click, 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 and, and you're done. I think this is a really good segue to ask for more examples of how have consumers behaved differently during this time? 
so I mentioned uh, they're cooking more. I think that's super important because uh, for a lot of time, um, you know, our lives were busy. And, and I think a lot of people had all the intention in the world to cook and it just didn't happen, which then leads to these scrambled meals or quickly eating out, uh, but not necessarily a well-planned out meal. And that's what we're seeing a lot more now. Uh, we're also seeing, to your point, big changes in how people are shopping. Initially, during those crazy panic buying weeks, people were going to several different stores to buy everything that they thought they needed. Then after that, people actually realized, you know, what? I'm in quarantine. I should be sheltering at home. I should not be going to stores. So what we're seeing right now is that people are shopping less but they're shopping a whole lot more in terms of the amount that they spend and the number of items that they're buying. Um, the other thing that is happening is that, you know, we typically would all go to convenience stores, maybe to get our morning cup of joe on our way to work, uh, obviously fill up uh, our cars gasoline wise. Uh, there's not a whole lot of movement happening right now at convenience stores. Uh, we also saw, for instance, that a lot of shoppers uh, typically bought all of their groceries on Saturday and Sunday, and the rest of the week was kind of fill-in days. Um, now there's a lot of shoppers either to avoid others in the store or because they have very different routines working from home that are um, shopping during the week. And some grocers tell me that Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday have actually become huge shopping days. Um, and at the same time, I think restaurants have done a tremendous job creating an environment where people are feeling safe in terms of the, the takeout. We know, of course, Florida, Georgia, Florida and, and Georgia were some of the um, earlier states and starting to open back up. I actually ventured out and had my meal, uh, my first meal out uh, last Saturday. And um, I think it's all about creating an environment where shoppers feel or consumers, diners feel safe. And I think restaurants are doing a tremendous job in that. And I truly feel that in terms of the demand across all the commodities, it's going to come back and it's going to come back fast. Um, so right now, of course, in the meat industry, there's a lot of pressure on supply because of uh, meat plants closing, because of labor issues in the meat plants. So prices have been rising. There's a little bit of tightness in the supply chain. Um, and people will also, of course, emerge in a completely different economic mindset than, than beforehand, uh, looking at recessionary conditions. So I would say anybody listening to the podcast, go back to what happened in 20, uh, 2008 and, and all the way up to 2012. How did people interact with, with your commodity or your brand or your store then? Um, because we're starting to see some of those recessionary behaviors emerging, things like buying private brands, which are the store brands, uh, buying in, in bulk. So getting that discount because you're buying in greater volume. So we're starting to see those behaviors and understanding how that impacts uh, supply ultimately, whether it is through food service or food retailing um, is an important thing to look at as well. Wow. I think that's, that's a really good analogy and it's, kind of crazy to think that that might be what we're up against in the next, you know, months and, and years, maybe. Continuing on, how have food trends been impacted by COVID-19? And specifically, what do you think will happen in the future? 
So that is a million dollar question. Um, you know, and my answer to that, and, and perhaps it's a bit of a cop out, but you know, everybody is like, hey, what's the next couple months, next couple of years gonna look like? My answer to that is I'm not sure that there is a national average that we can cite anymore. And if I think about it, let's just grab some of the four biggest states in terms of population, right? New York, for instance, has been incredibly hard hit um, and still is and will be for a long time. Then we look at California that uh, had a very different trajectory, but is also very cautious in opening back up. Then we have Texas and Florida, which have been among the first states to open back up and let businesses and restaurants get back to business. And so if you look at how the virus has disproportionately hit different states, but also how the economy will be disproportionately hit based on how fast these economies open back up, I think uh, more than anything, regardless of where you sit in the supply chain, trying to understand how conditions are locally is going to be extremely important. Um, I do believe that because of all the instant pot air fryers and kitchen supplies people have bought, also they've tried new recipes, they've, they've really maybe started to enjoy cooking or at the very least uh, increased their knowledge of cooking. Um, we're probably gonna see more of that in, in the future. Uh, that's another recessionary behavior is eating out less, cooking more. Um, so I would say definitely try to understand your local market. Um, and uh, I would expect to, the volume going through food retailing to be elevated for a while to come. Yeah, I think I think asking you to predict what will happen in the future is a little unfair unless you have a crystal ball. Uh, and it's probably what everybody is is asking you to do. Uh, so I think I'll I'll try to simplify and and shrink down our scope a little bit, but you know, in the last in the last few months that have been so crazy, what have we already learned from this crisis in terms of you know supply chain and growers? Just what can everybody learn already? Uh, I think several lessons. Um, I think those who were nimble and uh, got creative early. I have definitely come out on top. So we're, we've seen uh, produce distributors uh, very early on start to create consumer direct type of uh, meal kits. And that's actually been fantastic. I mean, they're not making up for the volume loss to, to food service, but um, they were out of the box early. They started thinking early. And one of the biggest lessons in all of this, I think, is in food retailing and, and really all together in food service, anybody that runs any kind of con consumer focused um, business has always thought, you know, the customer is king. Whatever the customer wants, that's what we're going to do. And very early on during COVID-19, we realized that, you know what, we need to take care of our employees and it's employees first, not customer first. And I think that is a giant lesson because there are some retailers out there. There's one in particular I'm thinking about, and that's Dorothy Lane Market. It's, it's just a 34 store operator in Ohio. And he has always said, I believe that when I treat my employees right, then they in turn will treat the consumers right. And so this whole notion of we need to protect our employees, their first now, their safety, their livelihood, um, uh, a lot of them have implemented uh, increases and in bonuses and, and really that idea of we take care of our employees um, is incredibly important. And I think that's a big lesson going forward. 
Um, the other big lesson I would say is, you know, and, and perhaps we're getting a little um, inundated with this whole we're in this together. But from a commodity supply chain point of view, we truly are in this together. And the, some of the creativity and some of the examples I mentioned earlier, a lot of us don't compete. So if you've uh, seen something that has worked in, in let's just say, Georgia, and, and you know that somebody in Florida could um, do the same exact thing without impacting us uh, geographically, um, let's share. Let's all uh, figure out how can we help each other? How can we share good ideas uh, without obviously giving away the secret sauce? So that's another big one. And a, a third big one, I think, is communication. Um, so I see a lot of consumer comments coming in after people take a trip. They get a little code on their receipt and they can write in whatever their random comments might be. It might be a great compliment about uh, the way the store looked or somebody um, uh, serving on them, or it just might be a, whatever random comment is on their mind. And what I thought was fascinating, um, this week I called it the, <laughs> where the heck is the dairy, is one consumer wrote uh, in, in their comment. And they've all seen the reports on consumer media where they're talking about um, milk dumping and there being such an overage in milk supply. And yet this shopper in the Midwest said, I go to the store and there is no milk, there is no butter. Uh, I can only buy one gallon of milk. I can only buy one container of eggs. What is happening? Now, we all know the issue with the supply chain is, is if you were a distributor that was feeding into uh, food service, the quantities and the packaging are completely different. So just because uh, you have, let's just say bacon, bacon is a good one. 75% of bacon was normally sold to food service, to restaurants. Um, so there's plenty of bacon out there. Um, but the issue is that when restaurants buy bacon, they buy an enormous volume. Like the, imagine a cookie sheet worth of, of a package. It's not labeled for individual consumption, if you will. So even though there's plenty of bacon out there, it took the supply chain a minute to figure out how to sell that into retail, how to repackage it to where consumers could buy it. And those kinds of things are happening really all throughout the supply chain, whether it's dairy or meat or produce, et cetera. So there is plenty of food. The thing is, it takes a while to adapt the supply chains to be able to feed into a different channel. And that's something that we've definitely learned. And, uh, you know, some lessons that come in mind there is, is the whole idea of communicate to shoppers so that they are not wondering where the, mil where the milk is and, and clearly are aggravated about that. Um, you know, spread out the eggs over multiple baskets if you can, so that if something happens to, to one channel, you can start to very easily switch to another one. Um, so I think the whole idea of nimbleness and communication have really emerged as two big business lessons uh, throughout this already. Yeah, absolutely. That was terribly ironic when I was in the Publix in Gainesville and I couldn't buy butter and I couldn't buy milk. And then that same day on Facebook, I was seeing videos of dairy farmers in Okeechobee having to dump milk and for a while, I didn't understand either. And I'm, I'm glad in the week since then, I have begun to better understand supply chains and why it's not as easy as I would think to divert that product to another channel. So, so yeah, thank you so much for explaining that because I just think that's, that's so important for people to hear right now. 
you might have already covered this, but how can growers and other people who work in agriculture help prevent this from happening in the future? Well, unfortunately, we are um, at the mercy of the virus and we're on the virus's timeline. And uh, let's hope to your earlier point that this will never happen again. Um, but we certainly got uh, caught on the back of our heels, I think, in a few different ways in terms of, like I said, there is plenty of supply. There is plenty of supply everywhere. Um, but it was hard for us to, to pivot very quickly. And those are massive investments um, in terms of having to switch over from food service to food retailing. So it's not very easily done. Um, but certainly just thinking about this on, on, let's just say, a smaller level, whether it's a blizzard or a hurricane, um, I think there's many lessons that we've all learned in terms of supply chain. So very early on, for instance, we saw retailers and, and others uh, do what we call skew rationalization, which means uh, you pull out maybe some of the smaller skews or you, you pull out some of the specialty cues, which makes it easier to buy, which makes it easier to supply. Uh, line extension started going. So I think there's a lot of what I would call battlefield decisions that have been taken over the last two months. And it's always good to look at, you know what, we were taking these decisions under pressure, but which one of them actually um, maybe warrant a longer term look? And I'll give you a good example. So in the meat case, you might have noticed that you see yellow trays and green trays and black trays. And for whatever reason, we felt the need to put organic meat in a green tray a lot of times. Well, if you think about a packaging line when they're actually producing those trays, it's a lot easier to produce millions and millions of the same color than having to stop that line, switch over to now making a green tray or a pink, purple, whatever tray. Um, and so there, there's a lot of efficiencies there if you can just have one size, one color. And that's what started happening during those panic buying weeks where we just needed supply and we didn't care anymore if it was green or black. And so some of those decisions that were taken at the company level or maybe in the field or wherever it was, let's think through those to see which ones weren't actually a longer term look and which ones were we doing that we don't actually have to be doing. Wow, absolutely. And my last question for you, because we're the Wedgworth Leadership Institute, we have to ask, in your opinion, what leadership lessons can we learn from this? Leadership lessons, and I've gone over a, a few, um, always take care of your employees. And when they feel um, empowered, trusted, um, and valued, they will in turn take care of the consumer or whomever the next step is in their supply chain. So I, I think that is a lesson that we had to learn the hard way in some cases. Um, also, never underestimate of uh, the power of being in this together. I have seen some very unique partnership emerge. For instance, there's a retail chain in Texas, HEB, um, that said, you know what, we need to divert our labor that normally works in a deli and, and creates all the deli meals. We need to convert those people over to meat and produce and just keep into store stocked. But they reached out to local restaurants and said, how about you guys cook meals, package them, and we'll sell them in our store. And so they actually started helping local restaurants move their product with their demand, of course, being devastated. So reach out to partners, even competitors that you thought um, you would never work with, because in times like these, there's some very creative um, 
uh, partnerships, I think. And then uh, communications, I can't stress that enough. Uh, we talked about the dairy and, and the, the shopper that wrote in, where the heck is the milk? Um, that goes across everything. Uh, for instance, right now, we're seeing very fast inflation in meat because of that tightness in the supply chain. And uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that a lot of people from across the country send in pictures to me. And one was from a Costco up in, in Denver that has signage out that says, you know, you have to understand that because of the supply chain issues, prices are rising. We have not changed our margins they are the same that they've always been. This is just the way the market has moved. So they just wanted to communicate to the consumer, no, we're not gouging you. We're not taking advantage of the situation. Um, we're just simply reflecting the prices that are, are happening in wholesale in retail as well. And so I think communication allows every one of us, whether you're an employee or a consumer or wherever you sit in the, in the supply chain, communication allows us to understand a situation better and with understanding comes appreciation and, and also just, uh, just giving people a break on what is happening. And during times like these that are just difficult for everybody, um, communications cannot be underestimated. Wow, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that sums everything up really well that we've been talking about just with open communication and how that allows people to understand a situation and then they can be more empathetic. I think that's a good stopping point for us. So I want to thank you again, Anne-Marie, for being on the podcast today. And I also want to let all of our listeners know that you can connect with Anne-Marie on LinkedIn. There she shares reports and analysis of what's happening with a lot of commodities. So be sure to check out her page and keep up with all of the insights she's able to provide. Anne-Marie's LinkedIn will be linked directly in the show notes of this episode and on our Facebook page. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Wedgworth Leadership Institute podcast. The Wedgworth Leadership Institute for Agriculture and Natural Resources is a University of Florida Institute for Food and Agricultural Sciences extension program. <laughs>